0: It seems that uh, the talk last night on the hindrances might have brought up a few hindrances for people, (laughs) especially doubt in our discussion group this morning. It was a popular theme of the group, such doubts as why am I here, why am I placing myself in this painful situation when I have such a nice, comfortable situation at home where there's my family and my loved ones, and everything is wonderful. And I feel driven to come to a meditation retreat where you know all this stuff seems to come up for me. Why why do I do this? And I think that people come to retreats for some different reasons. If you have a nice situation at home in your family life, in your work situation that doesn't place a lot of pressure on you, then coming to a meditation retreat like this becomes supplies the catalyst that pushes you into looking at yourself more deeply if you have plenty of difficulty and stuff coming up for you at home in your family life or in your work situation whatever coming to a retreat can be a nice way to get away from it all (laughs) you come to let go, you come to relax, you come to be in a place of solitude within yourself to feel some ease of being while you're here. So people come for different reasons, really. Um, But for whatever reason, at times there's going to be doubt that comes up in the course of our practice. One person in the group today wanted me to reveal how the path unfolds. This person was having some doubt about the path and what should be happening and wanted some proof that this was a viable thing that we're doing here and that it's going to lead somewhere. We all feel that sometimes. We all want that proof. It's like, well, if I'm going to do this, I want to know where it's going to take me. I want to know that it's worth my while. Otherwise, why sit and walk and you know, go through this for seven days times two retreats, times three retreats, times four years and five years? There has to be some kind of proof that That this stuff is going to work for us. And so we come to that place inside of ourselves where we start experiencing doubt about ourselves, about the path, about our life, about everything that we've been doing in our life. Where is all this going to take us? How free is John? Or Marcia, or anybody else here, or the Buddha? How do we know that he was really enlightened? The doubt seems to be a kind of intrinsic part of the whole spiritual path. Not only the spiritual path, but our human life as well. When we incarnate into human form as spirits, when we decide to incarnate into human body, into human form, we are born with what's called the veil of forgetting, where we forget our true nature. We forget who we truly are. We forget where we come from. We find ourselves in a body, in this solidified body that I was talking about the other evening. And we gradually, especially over time, through infancy, through childhood, as we age and as we grow older, we, can, we really forget you know, who we are. We forget our true nature. We forget that we are spirits. It's like one time someone told me that we're not humans trying to have a spiritual experience. We're spirits trying to have a human experience. Sometimes that's more difficult, having a human experience. We want to be spiritual, but oftentimes our real work, and the most difficult work for us, is just being human. Accepting our humanness, opening to our humanness, allowing our humanness, learning through being human. So when there's this veil of forgetting, we lose, we we don't know where we came from, we don't know, we forget that we're spirits, we forget that we've had past lives, we think that this is the only lifetime that we have there. This veil of forgetting comes down, and it's a necessary part of our learning. Because if we knew who we were, if we knew our true nature, if, that was, if we were fully cognizant of that, if we fully understood that, or if we knew what our total path was before us during this human incarnation, if we knew how everything was going to unfold, how everything was going to happen in our life, if we knew what relationships we were going to get in, how we were going to turn out, if we knew the insights and the difficulties that we were going to have, if all of that was kind of, if we knew all of that beforehand, there wouldn't be the whole lesson of faith. Because we would know already. But because all of this uncertainty, all of this moving Uh, inability to look into the future and understand, it brings us back to the present moment and where we are right now and what's going on right now for us. And that's all that we're really left with. We can't project and see into the future this way. And so all we have is right now, this present moment. We talked a little bit last evening during the question-and-answer period. The question came up, well, what is our motivation in practice? Why, Why do we come to meditation? Why do we want to use meditation as a tool in our spiritual development? What is is it motivated by? Is it motivated by fear? Is it motivated, motivated by pain? Is it motivated by desire? What's the motivation? And I think that we're motivated for some different reasons. One reason is just our love for the truth. Thomas Merton one said the heart of spiritual practice is a search for truth which springs from love and that's in each of us in each of us there is this desire for truth that comes from our heart that comes from love which comes from wanting to know our true nature what which, which comes from wanting to fulfill the potential of this lifetime so that we can become the most loving and the most compassionate, the most understanding being that we can become in this lifetime. And there's that seed of love and that search for truth that's in all of us. And that's a really strong motivating factor. I think that if each of us looks inside of our heart, we we can see that. That's a catalyst for us. It's something that pushes us on. Even when we come to some difficult times in our life and in our path. You know, when, as Thomas Burton says, true love and prayer are learned in the moment when prayer has become impossible and the heart has turned to stone. You know what that feels like? It's like that place in our in our life where we just kind of meet a wall in front of us. It's like we're driven by something inside and we want to know, we want to understand, but somehow, sometimes we just meet this wall in front of us and we can't seem to go any further. We feel desperate. You know, we feel like we want to commit suicide. I remember my, one of my teachers, Ajahn Chah, saying that one time in his practice he got so despairing he was living in the forest, In outside of the village that he grew up in, it was gri- eventually a monastery was developed around him and in this forest. But while he was there, it was just him when he, when he first went. He was a wandering ascetic monk. And he said he had some hard times, like we all do. And so being an ascetic monk, a wandering Tudong monk, all he had was this umbrella with a mosquito net on the top of it that draped down. And he said he would sit in the mosquito net and he would, in the distance, hear the roar of of tigers, because there were still wild tigers then in the forest. And, you know, there were lots of animals around. He said one time he was having a real difficult time in his practice, and he was sitting underneath his mosquito net, meditating, and was feeling this deep despair and doubt and uncertainty. He just didn't know where this is all going to take him. Here is he is sitting in the, in the middle of the woods in this mosquito net with nothing to protect him around him except the mosquito net itself. And he said... It started to rain. The rain was falling on top of the umbrella of the mosquito that was coming down around him. And gradually his robes were beginning to be soaked by the rain. And he said he felt so much despair that he started to cry. And that the tears that he was feeling started to melt in with the rain. And it was all just pouring down through him. The rain, the tears the despair, all just kind of moving through. We all have those kinds of moments in life where love and prayer are learned in the moment when prayer has become impossible and the heart has turned to stone. We just don't know where we're going to go, where we're going to turn, what we're going to do, what direction to take, and it's just profound doubt and uncertainty in our life it's in those moments when faith is born inside of us it's in those moments when we start to really learn what faith means where we can't turn any other place outside of ourselves for the answer the only place that we can go is within ourselves within our own heart it's an important point you know cuz So often we look outside for the answers. We want to know where this path is going to take us. We want to be certain about it. We want to be able to have some control over our life. And yet we all know all of the uncertainty in life. Where is that desire for control? Where does that come from inside of ourselves the need to know oftentimes it comes from fear that when we start to when we experience fear one way of... Getting away from the fear, moving away from the fear, is trying to grasp onto something that seems certain to us, that seems solid, that seems tangible, that's going to move us in a certain direction. Last evening, Marcia, talked about how it was an important night for her in giving the Dharma talk and deciding to give the Dharma talk first of all and then um, coming in and having all of you move forward coming closer and how it was a big step for her to do that. Well, this talk is similar for me because usually I do a lot of planning for the Dharma talk. You know, I write generally what I'm going to say for the talk, and, and I put it on some note cards, and so I have a gyp sheet to look at, All right. so I know what I'm going to say to cover my bases, you know. And so, I was doing that, you know, I was going through the usual spiel. I was sitting in my room today, I was writing out what I wanted to talk about. And then, you know, it came time to start putting it on the note cards, and I'm writing, and it becomes more and more work, and I'm tired, and I really don't want to do this. And then I realized that I'm giving a talk on faith and trust. <laughs> A light lights up inside of my mind and says, well, there might be a lesson in this for you, which is to have some faith that whatever it is that you need to say, it will come. It will be there for you. All you have to do is trust and listen to your heart. And that the inner wisdom is in your heart. And if you trust enough, if you have enough faith, if you're enough in touch with your heart, that whatever needs to be said will come out. But that was scary. It really was. Because you know there was always, if I didn't know what to say next, then I could look down at the card and pick up a sentence or two and then take off with that. So I started to feel real nervous. You know, when I was sitting there, I was breathing deeply in my room, sitting in the chair, you know, taking some deep breaths, you know, trying to calm down and say, okay, I'll say a few prayers, you know, make sure everything is okay, and then I'll go in and I'll give the Dharma talk. But there was that fear there, the fear inside that said, well, you have to know what to say next. You know, you have to have something to hold on to. You have to know what the next moment is going to bring. You know, where your next step is going to land. To make sure that there's some solid ground there. So that you'll feel safe. And when we look at our life, it's, it, it's, we see that the... Lessons of faith and trust and love are so profound for us. In in Buddhism, there's a term for a human being who is on the samsaric cycle, samsaric cycle of birth and death and rebirth, of continuing to come back into a body to learn. The understanding is that We move through incarnations to learn whatever it is that we need to learn to resolve any karma from the past to a point where we're liberated enough not to need to come back to the earth plane. And then we get off of the cycle of birth and death. And the term for a person, a human being, who's in this cycle is called aputhijana. And a is characterized as this suffering worldling who's stumbling through the samsaric cycle, so to speak. And Sometimes that's the way it feels. You know, it's like we're just kind of groping along in the samsaric cycle, just trying to understand what our life is about. Trying to understand, you know, why we're here and what it is that we're trying to learn. What is our path? And it's through continuing to come into our heart and trust where we are right now and what we're learning right now is exactly where we're supposed to be and and life is offering us exactly the lessons that we need to learn. But oftentimes we don't see it that way. We dismiss what's happening in our life right now and the lessons that are being offered to us, and somehow we think that we should be learning something else. So instead of paying attention to the present moment and what's going on for us right now and learning from that, we start thinking, well, you know, what I really need is a relationship, even though we're alone. What I think I really need is a relationship, you know? And then you get into a relationship and you think, well, maybe I really need to be alone, <laughs> you know? And we have, a, we have a certain mother and father who were born through and raised us, and we think, I should have had different parents than this. You know, I should have had the people next door, their, you know, my friend's parents. <laughs> We find ourselves in a certain job, and we're always desiring to have a different kind of job, where we tend to ignore and dismiss where we are right now and the lessons that are being offered to us. It's It's an avoidance mechanism. It's a way of escaping what we need to learn right now some of that is out of fear of moving more deeply into our life and the circumstances of our life and the lessons that are being offered. It's a way of avoiding that. So, we think of other things that we should be doing, where we should be. You might have seen this in terms of your own practice, where this doubt comes up about Vipassana meditation. and whether this is the path for me or not. And and there's a certain validity to all of that, because, first of all, one spiritual path is not necessarily going to be, or one practice is not going to be the practice that we do for the rest of our life. We may do it for a while, and then our needs change, and we move on to something else. But oftentimes, moving... um, Some of the doubt that we have about our practice is this avoidance mechanism which which, which moves us away from what we are experiencing right now and what we can go into more deeply right now. And so we look elsewhere or think that our lessons may be elsewhere instead of looking more deeply right here into the present moment and the circumstances of our life and what's happening for us. This is some of what takes place in terms of doubt. A meditation teacher who I know from England, his name is Stephen Batchelor, he wrote a book. I've never read it, but I like the title. It's called The Faith to Doubt. Mm-hmm. And in the Mahayana tradition, doubt is an effective vehicle for the path. That It's not considered to be a hindrance or a bad thing to doubt, but rather healthy doubt and allowing doubt to be there inside of your mind is a strong point of investigation. Investigation of the Dharma being one of the factors of enlightenment. And we can use doubt as an effective way of questioning ourselves, of looking at ourselves. Like, for example, in Zen practice, they use koan. Like, what is, the ha- what is the sound of one hand clapping? And there's no rational explanation or answer to what is the sound of one hand clapping. But you focus upon the koan, which is an unanswerable question to the point where your mind stops because it can't go any further in answering the question so it gives up, so to speak. When we're young, many of us were brought up in families, family situations that were difficult and painful. I noticed this especially with people who get involved with meditation, come to retreats, people who tend to get into spiritual practices kind of early in their life. In our society, there seems to be a lot of tension, a lot of pain in family living. I think, it, in part, it has to do with the intensity in which we live our life in a society, which is very, very fast-paced. And there's so much change in our society, intense change. And there's a lot of displacement where we don't have a lot of solid roots. You know, my grandmother and grandfather, one side came from Germany, the other side, Scotland and England. My parents grew up in Brooklyn. You know, and there was, I mean, there was a lot of uncertainty in their life. They grew up during the Depression. And there was a lot of fear inside of the family and fear inside in terms of their own lives and their own personalities and a lot of that kind of got carried over into the way that they raised their children and so there was a in my family and I see it so frequently and the people who I teach and who I counsel there's just been a lot of pain inside of the family There's so much abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse, alcoholism, um, separation in the family in terms of divorce. And all of this has a very strong impact upon the minds of the children. And when we grow up in a family situation in which there was a lot of pain, there was a lot of anger, there was a lot of yelling, there was violence of some kind, then the child itself oftentimes takes on the blame for that within themselves. The thought is that I must be doing something wrong. Because here I am, all this, all this anger, all this rage, all this violence and pain around me, and therefore it must be my fault in some way, that I must have done something wrong. Because if I did something right, if I was good, then the situation around me would be harmonious, would be peaceful. But instead, there's all this pain and all this fear and all this rage around me. And so we tend to internalize that within ourselves as being our fault in some way. And so we turn this negativity and anger in towards ourselves. We feel that we are the ones to blame for it. And in order to be acceptable to our parents, in order to create a living situation that is somewhat harmonious around us, we have to bury a lot of that anger and rage inside of ourselves. We stuff it down. Stuff it deep inside and come across as doing things that are acceptable, being pleasant, whatever, to maintain the status quo, to maintain some kind of cohesion within the family itself. While all the time, all this rage and this anger and this fear inside of us gets pushed down and pushed down and pushed down. We learn that we can't really trust our feelings because inside of ourselves we're feeling all this. We feel this anger. We feel this pain inside of ourselves. But we can't trust that it's a result somewhat of what's going on around us. That's too threatening to us. Because if we say, Mommy, it's your fault, or Daddy, it's your fault, then we place ourselves in a situation in which we're not ready to take responsibility for all of that. It's like we say, it's my fault. And, and, and in and, and it being my fault, some way it's easier to deal with it that way, because we can't change our mother, we can't change our father, we can't change the family situation. And so, we blame ourselves for it. And that's at that age, at that level of our development in our consciousness, That we have to, that's the only way that we know how to deal with it. And so all of that blame and all of that anger and all that rage stays inside of us. And we can't learn to trust our feelings. There is a basic level of mistrust. Mistrust outwardly, in terms of the grown ups around us, and the betrayal of their actions towards us if we were violated in some way. So there's mistrust of the grown-ups who we felt were going to protect us, who were going to take care of us, who we're supposed to be able to trust. And inwardly, there is mistrust within ourselves because there's all of these feelings taking place and we don't know where they come from and we feel that we're to blame, that it's our fault. And so right there, the grounds for faith and trust is very, very shaky in our life. There's a kind of instability and shakiness in our life. There's a reason for this. There's a reason why we have the parents that we have. Why there's a certain dynamic between our parents and ourselves why we're experiencing so much pain at an early age in our life. And that is, first of all, so that we start to open our eyes. I notice that a lot of people who have a lot of pain in their life, who early on have pain in their life, that they tend to be very Intuitive. they they develop an extra sense about themselves where they kind of understand more what's going on around them because they don't have a very easy kind of childhood that allows them just to move along happily and joyfully through life that there's been enough tension and pain around them that has made them open their eyes and kind of be very sensing and feeling of what's happening around them. That's one of the functions of pain. And that is that it helps to open our eyes. It makes us more attentive. It says, hey, pay attention! And you have to. When there's there's a lot of tension, when there's a lot of pain going on around you, everybody has to start paying more attention. And this is the other reason why We talked about, last evening, about the motivation in practice. One is that it comes from a place of love inside of ourselves and the desire for truth. The other thing that motivates us into spiritual practice is the pain in our life, the shadow side in our life. It's like we can't rest in that sense of everything is okay because everything isn't okay. Everything isn't okay. Sometimes things are very, very hard and very, very painful. Not that the pain itself teaches us or necessarily that that that's the only way to learn, but certainly, as you know, when you hit a rough period in your life somewhere where there tends to be more pain, it kind of shakes you up. It says, hey, pay attention and look. What's going on right now? And that's a gift to us. That's really a gift. We may not see it as a gift for a while because we get lost in the pain and blame. We say, why me? You know, why was I abused? You know, why did I have to grow up in a family where there was so much fear and anger and so little love and, nur- and, and, nur- and nurturing? And so we get lost in our pain and we blame. And that takes place for a while where we blame and we blame and we fight against it, we rage against it to the point where we see that it's not leading us anywhere. It's not leading to any more, any, to a deeper healing inside of ourselves. But rather, we stay kind of stuck in the same place. or we judge ourselves for it. You know, it's my fault. If only I were different. If only I had done this different or that different, then my life and my family life and everything would be different. That's where a lot of our judgment comes from. How much do we judge ourselves? Constant judging mind, judging mind, judging mind. We're never good enough. There's always something wrong. We're never where we feel we should be. Sometimes in my classes, weekly classes, I have people carry a pad around with them, and every time that they judge themselves, they have to write it down. Mm -hmm. A pad's out a lot. Mm -hmm. Judging, judging, judging. Look at your mind during the retreat. How many times have you judged yourself so far? I can't stay on the breath. My mind wanders. Why does my mind wander? Why can't I sit more still? Why can't I walk like this other person? You know, why does my body look the way that it looks? You know, all this kind of incessant judgment about ourselves, beating ourselves. You know, creating more pain, more blame over and over and over and over again. No wonder there's no peace. I no wonder there's no healing within ourselves when there's so much judgment about ourselves. As some of that comes from the family and the society around us that says, you should be this way, you should look this way, you should act that way, you should have this degree, you should have that kind of job, you should be heterosexual, you should have a family, you should have 2.5 kids, you should, you should, you should, you should. But if you're different... It's rough. It really is hard. Why does one choose to be homosexual? Why does one choose to live alone? Why does one choose to be different from everybody else? Even if it's not a conscious choice, but it's the way somebody manifests in their life, being different in some way. And oftentimes that's because In being different that way, there's a lesson to be learned in it. But we fight that lesson so much. We resist it, we fight it. And in our mind, because of the conditioning, we say, but I have to be this way, I should be that way. And we live our life as a lie as a result of that. We don't live the truth of our own being, the truth of our own life try to be somebody else, try to be another way. At a certain point, People, as they move along their path, start to see how much fear motiva- is a motivation in the way that they think and the things that they do, how they act in the world. I was talking about this in one of the groups, maybe it was yesterday, and were talking about fear. at one point in my practice, I saw everything as fear. It was just fear, 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 everything. I felt so much fear inside, everything outside of me reflected fear. And I felt how much I was controlled by fear. Fear of not being good enough. Fear of not getting enough, not having my needs met. Fear of... not getting the love that I want. Fear that whatever love is there was going to be taken away. Fear that if I didn't act a certain way or perform in a certain way that people wouldn't like me, that people wouldn't accept me. And how much of my life and the way that I lived and the way that I related to people was motivated by fear. But it felt so uncomfortable. The more I started getting in touch with this fear, it's like, You know, I'm not living from love here. I'm not living from my heart. I'm living from fear. It was this feeling of not only basic dishonesty within myself, but always feeling that I was never good enough and that I would never have what I needed to have and this is something that a lot of children grow up with with this kind of basic fear that we're not going to get what we need and we're not going to be able to survive and be happy as a result of that so out of that fear we need to grasp and cling and clutch onto everything that we think might allow us to feel more safe and secure within ourselves and hold on to whatever that might be. You know, it might be a relationship that we find some safety and security in that relationship and so we hold on to it. Out of fear. You know, or it might be money you know, or a certain status and power that we're holding on to out of fear that if we let go of that, then somehow we're going to be hurt in some way. We're going to feel deeply empty inside of ourselves. We're going to be lost, we're going to be hurt, and we're going to be unhappy. And so we hold on to this. Afraid to let go. This is where a lot of our control mechanism comes from. It comes from fear. The need to control and have things a certain way in our life basically comes from fear. It's an important point in transformation to see, first of all, that one cannot hold on to anything. That, first of all, everything is impermanent. Everything is impermanent. Every relationship that we have, in a certain sense, on the physical plane level, is impermanent. Either you die first or I die first. Either you leave first or I leave first. Everything that we own is impermanent. Everything is impermanent. And so, seeing that, or not realizing that to begin with, we hold on to everything out of fear that if we don't hold on to it, that we're going to be hurt in some way. It takes a deep faith in ourselves and in the process of life to start to understand and also a deep seeing into impermanence and the changing nature of all things to realize that we can't hold on to anything. That, 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 that sense of security itself is an illusion and that that attachment is what continually recreates the illusion of safety and control. And it may be that it's not until the circumstances of life itself becomes so intolerable for us in some way, and so painful for us in some way, that we start to let go. It's like the shit hits the fan, the roof falls in, and we just can't hold on any longer. You know, we'll hold on, we hold on, we hold on until everything just, until we reach our midlife crisis. We can't hold on any longer. (laughs) Life will do it to us. If we don't let go, life will force us to let go. It'll force us because that's what we need to learn. That's what we need to learn. We need to learn to, to trust and to have faith. You know, to learn to breathe into our own heart. You know, to rest inside of our heart. You know, say, we are safe. Inside of our heart, inside of our own being, there is our true nature there, and we're safe there. Nothing is going to harm us. On a physical level, we can be harmed, okay. But to our spirit, we're not going to be harmed. In the Bible, so many times is the phrase, the three words, be not afraid. It's the thing that is most often repeated in the Bible. Be not afraid, be not afraid, be not afraid. Like Jesus, when he was on a boat in the Sea of Galilee, he was sleeping underneath the boat. And there was a storm raging outside. The waves were very high, and the boat was going up and down. It was a big storm. And some of his followers were up top in the boat, and they got very scared because the water started pouring in. And they went down below, and Jesus was asleep. They woke him up. They said, Aren't you scared? He said, The water is coming in. You know, we might die. Jesus looked looked at them and said, why are you scared? Don't you have any faith? Where is your faith? Our body is going to die. Our body, the nature of our body is that it is subject to disease. It's subject to death. It's subject to destruction. But nothing can harm our spirit. Nothing can do And that there is this place inside of ourselves where we can rest to understand that we are truly safe there, that there is true peace in this place inside of ourselves that cannot be destroyed, that is truly the place of of peace and of harmony within ourselves. I think for human beings, the biggest lessons for us are faith and love. Those are the biggest lessons. That's why we're here, to learn faith, to learn love. I used to, when I was in Thailand, in my mind, judge the tithes, the lay tithes, lay people, because they would take incense to the Buddha statue and they would pray to the Buddha like he was a god. And I I would say, this is not what the Buddha taught. This is not what the Buddha wanted, to be prayed to as a god. And he certainly didn't want that, just as Jesus didn't want to be prayed to as a god. He wanted Jesus wanted people to see his humanness because he didn't want any separation between himself and other people. If he separated himself in some way as being God, then the lessons that could be transmitted through his humanness would be lost. And so he went to great lengths to For people to see that he was human, like when he bled, he let people see that he bled. When he was in some kind of emotional pain, he expressed the emotional pain. He didn't try to hide it from people because he didn't want any kind of separation. And he was truly human. And the Buddha, it was a similar kind of thing. He didn't want people to worship him as a god, but as a human being who found liberation through the samsaric cycle and became free. And so when I saw the Thai people offering incense and praying to them like a god, I said, you're not practicing Buddhism. But it was only later that I started to understand that in the way that they were praying to the Buddha, they were developing faith. They were developing love. And it was their way of practicing their religion. It was their way, it was their spiritual path. It was the way of deepening of love and faith inside of themselves. We each each work at the place where we're at and the level of understanding that we're able to practice a certain kind of religion or spiritual tradition. And so for each of us, sometimes maybe we can ask ourselves at certain times where things are difficult, where Every prayer and love seems impossible, and the heart has turned to stone. We ask ourselves at that point, where's the opening for me? Where can my heart open to deeper faith right now? Where can my heart open to deeper love right now? Where can I find more acceptance of myself? You know, when we start to meet our judging mind, and we start to contract And we start to feel the walls closing in around our heart and the protection around our heart. And we start to feel more solidified. We start to feel more self. We start to feel more fear inside of ourselves. At that point, can we just relax, take a few deep breaths? And just allow it all to settle down into the heart and say to ourselves, now, where can I learn trust right now? Where can I learn a little bit more faith right now? Where can I learn more self-acceptance right now? Where can I find more compassion for myself right now? Where can I find deeper love? Because it's only when we allow the walls of our heart to gradually start to Away. All that armoring around our heart that has been built up since we were children. No, it's been built up even before that, through many, many lifetimes of fear and self-anger and judgment and blame, where we've kept our heart so protected because the, our heart is so tender. It's, there's so much love and compassion inside of ourselves. That when there's violence and anger and pain around ourselves and when we started to internalize that into ourselves and started to judge and blame and feel anger at ourselves, and we just created this kind of wall around our heart, a barrier around it to protect ourselves, to protect this soft, beautiful heart that each of us has. And that's what we come up against in our meditation. We come up against that fear. We come up against that judgment, that blame, that anger. We slowly start to uncover it more and more and more and more. And as we do that, meeting each of those mind moments with compassion, with love for ourselves, love for this person who's experiencing this pain, As we do this, we learn to trust ourselves more, to trust the process of what's happening for us, to have a deeper faith in ourselves and the unfolding of our past. Let's just have a few minutes of silent reflection. Do you have any questions? Okay, the question is that it doesn't seem like in Buddhist writings that there's much emphasis given to the place of love. But Buddhism is more characterized as a path of wisdom and compassion. And I would say that both of those things, wisdom and compassion, are inseparable from love. That the more that we understand ourselves, the more insight and self- understanding we have, and the more compassion we have for ourselves, the more that we enter into the heart and into love, that there's really no difference between the two. Um, A Buddhist path is is a path, is a wisdom path, whereas Christianity for example, is more a faith path. There's more emphasis on faith placed in Christianity than there is in in Buddhism. So I think that Buddhism appeals to a certain kind of mind that gravitates towards the wisdom factor and the development of that. But if you just have wisdom without compassion, Without an embracing of the heart, it doesn't necessarily lead to a deep healing in somebody. So that aspect of compassion, of having a deepening compassion for ourselves and all that we experience, especially our pain, and learning to embrace that moves us deeper into our own heart, which is where we find a deepening of love. The question is, I made such a statement as (laughs) our physical body could be harmed, but our spirit can't be harmed. It's based upon, I've spoken to you about a friend of mine named Aaron. And during the Gulf War, We were talking to him about ways of relating to the war, going there or not going there. And what he said was that if human beings came to a point where they were willing to go to the front lines of a war, to sacrifice their body, not to fight, not to try and kill anybody, but just to walk to the front lines and say to the supposed enemy on the other side that this is the way that it doesn't have to be, that we can learn to love each other. We don't have to fight. We don't have to kill each other. And that even if it meant, you know, wave after wave of person doing that, going to the front line and making that statement, making that stand, that eventually it would change that situation. There would be no longer a war taking place because there's nobody on this side that's willing to fight it. And he said that, we move through so many different incarnations that for a person to make that statement of I'm willing to die for what I believe even though it means the death of my physical body that the spirit is not in any way harmed by that. In fact, there is a deepening of many of the qualities that we talk about here in making that kind of statement of surrender, of letting go, of love, of compassion, of all of that. It's a sacrifice of the human body, but the spirit itself is not harmed. In fact, it actually grows from the experience. So it's in that kind of reflection and understanding that I make the statement that, our spirits cannot be harmed, even though something can happen to us on the physical level. And it will. I mean, having a physical body and going through all of the experiences that we do as a conscious human being means it's going to have its impact upon the human, whether it be cancer or whether it be you know, some other kind of disease or being shot or whatever it might be. But that's only on the level of what's happening to the human being. It's not harming the spirit, and in myself, I have looked at that and taken deeper faith and trust that that is true, and that's why I say it. Yeah. Okay, just let me just let me answer this. Okay, the question. Okay, the question is that some of the explanations. That come from somebody else's words or somebody else's experience don't necessarily relate to our experience and do us any good because we haven't experienced it, or I haven't experienced it firsthand. There are two kinds of faith. Okay, one is blind faith and the other is verified faith. Blind faith is we haven't experienced it, somebody like the Buddha says that it's true or some other source says that this is the way that it is and it rings in our heart as being true even though we haven't ourselves experienced it this way we have we go on blind faith okay and in the beginning of our practice that's a lot of what we go on it's just blind faith you know. Like when I first started with Buddhism um, and started reading about the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path and the liberation of the Buddha, I hadn't—I didn't experience any of those things. I really—I mean, I did on some level understand what suffering was and how it arose, etc. But I didn't know if it was going to—if the meditation, being a monk, etc., was going to lead me out of suffering. So I read this, and it sounded. Tr- like true in my heart and I had enough faith to start to begin to walk on the path this is kind of, This is called blind faith and all of us at some point start from that place of blind faith as we walk along the path as we start to understand ourselves more as we have more experiences our faith is more based upon that experience. It's called verified faith. So that it's based upon what we understand. So, there's both of these kinds of faiths that are operating inside of ourselves. Now, if what I say doesn't have any meaning for you, it's okay. You just let it go. It doesn't have any meaning for you. It might have meaning for somebody else. Certainly, no one teaching or one way of expressing the Dharma is going to touch everybody the same way, or have the same degree of relevance or truth for every person. So whatever I say, whatever anybody says, you have to run it through your own heart to see what degree of relevance or truth, whatever it has for you. What I talk about is What has been, what is relevant to me, either from what I have heard or from what I've experienced myself. So, this is what I offer you. And then it's up to you to decide for yourself what is helpful and what is not. What is helpful, you reflect upon, hold in your own heart, and reflect upon it. What is not, you just let it go. Okay? Did you want to say something?